Hello, and welcome to Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist Podcast. My name is Tony. I am a contributing editor here at NFM. You can find me at Poet Pedagogue on Twitter. Um, with me today, again, returning, are Mo Black and the BMC, Black Manga Critic, or Danny. So if you all want to quickly introduce yourselves. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Mo Black. I make long-form uh, anime content from like a left-wing, abolitionist, anarchist, whatever is perspective. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm just happy to be here. I've, I've admired Anifem for a long time, so um, it's great to be working with y'all. Yeah, and I am BMC, the Black Manga Critic. Not recently, but I, you know, I have a YouTube channel. I do manga reactions to, you know, you know, different kinds of manga. Um, and I have a Twitter where um, I talk about, you know, abolition, anti-blackness. Um, yeah, also like, you know, anarchism, communism, uh, and education. Um, and sports, right? So I talk about a lot of things, but those those other things are the main things. Right. And uh, hopefully um, for you all, you know this is a part two of our two-part episode about anime and abolitionist theory um, and abolitionist practice. So if um, you have not, go ahead and go back and listen to part one. It's good, I promise. And today we are going to be um, talking a little bit more in depth about certain like tensions and challenges and more kind of complex ideas in abolitionist theory because uh yeah now that we've got an introduction it's there's a lot of different things that we are all trying to figure out together as abolitionists and anime provides a really important space to do that the first one i thought we could start with um because this is a feminist anime podcast i think a lot of people when they think about abolition they they often wonder well have these abolitionists ever themselves experienced being sexually assaulted or, you know, surviving an act of violence? And um, I wanted to start with, you know, talking about how the kind of position of survivors as central to abolitionist thought really changes, uh, like, or solidifies our understanding of abolitionism. And yeah, talk about how that relates to a couple different anime. Um, specifically Jojo Stone Ocean and F- Women Called Fujikamine. So did y'all want to kind of get started with kind of what this means to you, centering survivors in uh, abolitionist work and why that's important? Yeah, uh, okay, I guess I'll I'll start. I guess to me the basic thing is it's simple, but it's not easy, right? It's simple in the sense that like the main like leadership and organization of any sort of movement should come from the people who are most affected by it, right? Um, but then you get a lot of really pedantic people. It's like, oh, are you saying that someone's right just because they went through this experience or just because they went through this skin color or blah, blah, blah? We can't criticize them. And, it's, and, then, you, and then you have to go on like a case-by-case basis and blah, blah, blah. But like the bottom line is if you're in a room in your organization or movement or Discord server or whatever, and like all of the people talking are people who have never experienced this before. Um, and they're all talking to each other about how cool they are. You fucked up. That That's just 
if you can avoid that situation and you instead have a room where it's a bunch of people who actually have skin in the game doing their best to disambiguate this, that's how you know you've like done well. Yeah. And I would say, I think there are definitely like moments where within, um, you know, obviously within popular culture, um, within our uh, social and political milieu, where when it comes to like thinking like censoring survivors, uh, when you're talking with, let's say certain people, um, and kind of like, you know, relating to like what Mo said, where, you know, you can, you, you can kind of see that, like, maybe these people um, either A, are just really like uninterested in that centering and are more interested in just kind of like talking about something and kind of showing off, oh, well, I know this thing. I know A, B, and C. I know, you know, X, Y, Z. Then there are instances, and one, one that I'm thinking of right now is... Um, did any did any of you um and this is just like this is to the audience as a whole too that have either of you seen that um that Jane Fonda clip um um when she was on the View and they were talking about you know um women's like you know like autonomy like like bodily autonomy and the state having just just this like unacceptable um and that's what they say that there is an acceptable like amount of control that the state should have on women's bodies right it's just say like this is unacceptable right like like to have any sort of control over women's bodies and um they were like well like and they were you know they were kind of talking with fonda and she was and they're like well what, what do you what do you suggest and fonda's like murder <laughs> right oh yeah yeah i i remember right I remember and that. and i think to any one of us who you know take centering survivors seriously um within our politic that we we were like yeah you know, we like we take Jane Fonda very seriously in that moment, but like, there's like this like uncomfortable laughter that occurs, and Jane Fonda's just kind of looking around like I was dead serious, right? Like she's you know she's kind yeah. of like doing it right, and so it's those are kind of moments where I think are really interesting to where where those conversations show up, right? Where we center survivors and we're like, well, you know, okay, so in this instance, we see um, Jane Fonda suggesting like murder as as something like that could maybe lead to a uh, resolution of some of, 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 uh, that violence. But normally, right. Like people are like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. What are you talking about? But, it, but at the same, but at the same time we have, right. Just absurd, like levels of state violence, right. Death penalties, you know, agents of the state murdering, uh, people with impunity, just like right. So, it, so to me, I think when we talk when we talk about centering survivors, I think a lot of times what goes sort of unnoticed is the ways in which we view survivors, um, the the request of survivors, right, and the and the um, the words of survivors and the thoughts of survivors, as opposed um, as like you know um, just ridiculous, right? As a but. When it comes to like state-sanctioned violence and agents of the state enacting state-sanctioned violence, right? We again, again, back to Angela, what Angela, what I was talking about with Angela Davis, right? We we take that for granted. We're like, yeah, yeah, kill them, like, you know, put them, you know, shoot them, like, right? Not we, but you know what I mean, like in terms of like the like the United States or nation states or whatever. Well, when you think about something like even like what happened with Jordan Neely, right? It's like. Mm. He's homeless and oh, yeah. he's suffering and he's complaining about it. 
we got to kill him because he's complaining about suffering from being homeless. Like, it's like, well, it's, and that, 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 that's so normalized. Like, it's so normalized that you would murder somebody who, you know, is just surviving, like, homelessness. But it's like, but then, you know, it just shows you kind of the normalization of certain forms of violence and the kind of, I wouldn't say feigned shocked uh, reaction, but certainly, like, just a little bit disingenuous shocked reaction when we, like, when we talk about it in any other context. But, yeah. I just, like, overall, we center survivors because... In by default, we have the tendency to empathize with people who are not survivors, right? And who are not directly impacted by the system. We all, by default, think the system works super well until something happens to us specifically. That's when we start like questioning, right? So like with, with the Jordan Neely case, more often than not, the people commenting on it have not been homeless, have not been in that situation. But they had been in a situation where um, they felt a homeless person made them feel uncomfortable, right? And so the knee-jerk reaction is to emphasize with the killer, right? And not with the victim in the situation because you've never been a victim in that case, right? But if you have a default politics, like, okay, we have a system, it uses people, um, centered to people who are hurt by it first and foremost. Um, you can, it's not, it's not perfect, but you can at least begin to not have completely unhinged takes where, where it's like, yeah, you know, if you yell at someone at a subway, you know, execution, you know, that's the, <laughs> which I think if you, if you said that plainly, if you said that plainly, everyone would realize, yeah, no, that's, that's ridiculous. Right. But then when the case shows up, because you're not centering the people who are affected, suddenly like, that's literally what you believe. Right. And you haven't even skipped the beat. <laughs> And it's very interesting because, like, when I'm working with students and I bring up the Jordan Neely case and I'm like, like, oftentimes they will be like, the way they will frame it, because many of them have experienced homelessness, right, is immediately like, yeah, like, didn't, wasn't that dude just, like, shot for complaining because he was hungry? Mm. And I'm like, and I just kind of stand there at the front of the room and I'm like, I just nod and I'm like, Yeah. (laughs) keep mm-hmm. going because <laughs> you know because the, ki- the kids know what's up if because many of them have like the kids i work with anyway many of mm-hmm. like it not not i don't want to paint with a broad brush but you know it they they know people in their community who have been through these situations right and so it, it just creates a different kind of empathy right um I, and this is becomes really important when we're looking at and I also want to emphasize that, like, survivor, there's many different ways of thinking about survivorship, right? So survivorship is, can be, we can think about survivorship both in terms of, like, class, like we were referring to, like, homelessness, but also I think it's important to look at it in terms of um, gender and um, sexual violence, because so often, you know, people's derailing critique of abolition is, what about the rapists? And... I think that when we look at these situations and we're going to like the anime in particular, we're going to look at really gets into this. Um, The prison is actually in many ways, the site of sexual violence for so many people, right? Prison is not the solution to sexual violence. It causes sexual violence systematically. So the, what about the rapists kind of line is just incredibly out of touch with the reality of, anybody who's actually been in prison right so yeah uh i'm gonna start by talking about like 
a little bit about Woman Called Fuji Kamine. I, um, it'll be a little bit of me talking because um, I'm the only one here who's watched it. But the Woman Called Fuji Kamine is a really interesting example of this dynamic of um, the prison system is in itself being the way, the thing that creates sexual violence. Um, and I think about this in particular through the characters of Zenigata and Oscar and the way that they um, prey on Fujiko. So earlier, early in the show, right, Zenigata sleeps with Fujiko and has sex with Fujiko while she is in custody and frames it partly as kind of like a, this is the, the condition of your release is that you sleep with me, which effectively makes it rape right it's there's no there's no way around that right it in in, in yeah, that we right. we see him kind of and this by the way is something that happens not the necessarily the condition of release but certainly officers and corrections officers and police raping their um the um incarcerated people and who they you know take in is rampant um in the prison system. It is extraordinarily common. And so we see in Women Called Fuji Kamine, like it actually accurately represented in that sense, right? And there's mm-hmm. even a moment where he's like, he's about to take a cigarette and put it out on her chest. And she has to flick it away before he does that because ultimately he's the one who has power in that situation, right? And as he's right. doing that, he's also reinforcing creating this kind of model cop culture for his, you know, his lieutenant, Oscar, who is a repressed gay person. There's no way around it. Oscar, I'm not sure if Oscar's gay, trans, it's very unclear. Oscar kind of feels like this kind of almost a throwback to the 1920s when we used to talk about inverts, because Oscar is really enjoys dressing up in women's clothing for all of his schemes, wears high heels, and is obviously in love with Sanigata. But then Oscar, mm. to demonstrate his power over Fujiko Mine, rapes her. Um, and it is in an extremely upsetting scene um, where, and it, in a sense, we're seeing the creation of this kind of <clears throat> cop culture where rape against inmates is normalized, right? Where sexual violence is used for power, right? To demonstrate one's power over um, the the criminal you are taking in, right? It really demonstrates that, like, cops don't stop violence. They cause it, right? It, mm-hmm. it doesn't be... And it's, it's really interesting because the show frames Oscar as being, like... Saved by Zenigata, you know, early, early in you know early in his life, he he kind of he sees himself as being saved by Zenigata is what I mean. I don't think that Cho necessarily agrees with that, but then Zenigata's influence on Oscar is actually profoundly, profoundly negative in terms of mm-hmm. all the ways in which Oscar eventually completely represses his queerness, right? enacts all of the sexual violence um, that is shown to be part of the cop culture in this in the world of the show. And Fujiko then has to live with the trauma from all of that. 
it's it's a lot, but I think that the woman called Pichigamuni really powerfully demonstrates so much of what we're talking about. And Fujiko has to has to figure out how she's going to survive after all of that trauma. And we're encouraged to kind of go with her through that journey um, as a survivor. And yeah, <laughs> it is very anti-cop um, and very, mm. very much about that the way that cops use sexual violence to, infor- to enforce that power over people. From what I've heard, the, the Lupin series in general is usually pretty good about this stuff or i've not watched enough of it this is the only lupin series i've actually ever seen to be honest oh, interesting. but i will say there is something interesting though about i think there's a contrast between um zenigata how zeni how mario kata views zenigata and how mario kata views cops and the work cultural work that the show is doing the show is very anti-cop right it is very much right. about how cops in it, engage in sexual violence to wield power over people and that that is needs to be abolished right um but it still wants to honor the the history of zenigata as being like the one good cop that lupin you know respects or the one cop that lupin respects right and mm-hmm. so it, it has this kind of really strong tension between you know this desire to critique cops right and also the legacy of the rest of the show, I guess, that sh- where where Zenigata is represented as being like kind of the exception to the role of cops being bastards, you know, where well, Lukeman respects that one, but yet the show still has him rape Fujiko and model this horrific thing that Oscar ends up picking up, right? Right. Mm. Like I, yeah, I, I have a hard time thinking of a, like other anime that are as explicit you know like even just now i'm like you know because a lot of the violence you know um a lot of a lot of the violence that does happen you know um uh that is enacted upon survivors like is you know it's like it's not necessarily like within um a prison within like a lot of the anime that we tend to see where that's like a focal point um so it is, and so yeah. So it is. So it is interesting that like the I, personally, I don't know because it was like on my end, it, like um, the Lupin the Third, like that that franchise. Like it's not something like I know Fujiko Mini is like a, a an important character within that franchise. I'm not sure like how much like those like those specific depictions of like you know prison violence um, are. Right, like violence of with right, like um, sexual violence um, enacted by like officers, right, agents of the state, like on women. I don't know how much that 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 appears within um, the series, but I do think that's like a really great instance in terms of like sort of portraying that and like you know having people like sort of see that within a popular franchise. I think that's that doesn't ha- I don't think that happens like very often, at least within anime. Well, what's interesting about Woman Called Puchikamine is the way a lot of people look at it, right, is taking taking a character who had pre- previously been practically, I mean, like, normally you use the term fungible in the context of anti-blackness, but it, this is a mm. character who's literally interchangeable woman, right? That's, you know, how, how you would think of Puchikamine early in the Lupin series, right? And then re-kind right. of recontextualizing the whole series 
through her eyes, right? And through the eyes of somebody who's experienced so much sexualization that is often unwanted, right? And I think that in that way, like, the woman called Pichikimini really strives to center survivors of sexual violence in a way that I think a lo- there's not a humongous amount of other shows that do that. Um, but I, I, the, the, the other show that I thought could be really interesting to talk about in this context is Jojo's Stone Ocean. Um, I, and yeah, it, it doesn't have as much depictions of sexual violence in prisons, but I thought it was a really interesting one to talk about kind of the ways that women's agency and women's um, moral purity is talked about in prison contexts and like how, how like sexist ideas of women's purity are used to kind of reinforce like lock them away for good, you know, attitudes Mm -hmm. or just, you know, disposability attitudes of disposability of the women who are, who are locked up. Um, And also how women resist that, you know, in how, in how Jojo, uh, excuse me, how Jolene and, you know, allies with, you know, the woman around her to fight back. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on Jojo Stone Ocean, I guess? I have, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) I have a lot of, excuse me. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I think the first place to start and, and, so <laughs> I'm going to preface like my thoughts by saying that I have um, many friends, uh, Tony included, of course, who were not like fans of the franchise, of the JoJo's franchise, right? And of like the previous parts adore part six, right? Like part six is like, oh, okay, we're doing something here. Like this is like, wow, like, we're really making, like, a a social commentary that is, like, distinct, you know, and is not um, vulnerable to bizarre uh, close readings or whatever, right? Or cherry-picking or whatever. It's, like, this, this, like, part is, like, uh, like, if anything else, a, like, critique of the prison industrial complex and like the violence that the violence that is enacted, um, right. Or the violence that women, right. That violence that is enacted upon women, like within these particular spaces, like, like anyone who's like watching part stone ocean, like, and doesn't like take that with them. I'm like, what do you, like, what are we watching? You know what I mean? But I think in, in the other parts, I think it's very easy to just kind of focus on like, yeah, there's like, you know, magic. There's like a magic system, and you know, uh, what's the word? Um, lineage, familial lineage, and the JoJo's and the Joestar family, and like Dio vampires, right? Like it's like, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like okay, but part six though, you know. So so to me, the like I I I think part six is. To me, like one of my my favorite parts, it's not my favorite part. I think I've I've said it often, like in the past, like I've told people, I'm like part six is my favorite part, you know. And I think part six only grew to be more, um, more more like you know cemented as my favorite because of what it does and be and and how my politics have grown and and shifted. So, in terms of like one thing that I think is great about Stone Ocean in terms of its depiction of like, um 
uh, sexual violence, um, right, physical um, uh, abuse within like prisons is that there are, it's not just, right, it's not just, okay, the prison guards are the um, arbiters of violence within prisons, like, and that's, and that's where we focus on, like, we just focus on, like, the prison guards, it's like, no, like, there's a priest, there's, um, right, there's, like, um, Enrico, um, Pucci, who's, like, supposed to be, right, this, uh, bastion of, you know, morality and, um, religious, um, piety, right, like, of piety and all these things, but he's, like, the villain within the prison, right, and normally you have individuals who, right, like, the priest is supposed to be a figure that is, not 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 even like adjacent to right like the the prison industrial complex like with, in terms of like how people think of like catholicism about how think people think of like um that but separate right like he's supposed to be an individual that people who are within that system who are being um uh harmed within that system are supposed to be able to go to for uh salvation Right, but he is the villain mm-hmm. here. Like he is like unequivocally like the villain. So I think at the very least, like that is one authorial choice that I really appreciate. Um, by Iraqi with part six. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree about the priest. That he's actually the reason why I brought up Stone Ocean because to me, the priest in Stone Ocean represents the moral, the ways that the the kind of moral purity of women or moral purity in general is litigated in pr- prisons to create, you know, all these different ideas about <laughs> who is deserving of, you know, salvation, meaning like reform and what that looks like and how in the, the, the position of the prison as a space of reform, he represents the hypocrisy of how, of, of this idea of prisons as a space for moral reform. Because, I mean, at once, obviously, he's a terrible, terrible person, right? So who is he <laughs> to talk about moral purity and, like, any of that? But on a much deeper level, right, he he has this one moment. So one of his episodes where he's introduced, he talks about um, this idea that... This idea that of reformability, right? You know, people are in here so that they can reform and become mm-hmm. better people. But then he simultaneous to that and completely contradicting that, he he dictates that that many of the people he comes across are just like, no, that person is unreformable. They should just be in here forever, right? Or mm-hmm. or die, right? <laughs> and so there's this kind of contradiction there that represents, I think, a significant contradiction within the system as itself. And and as it pertains to like how we talk about prisons, right? Because we often will justify prisons as saying like, well, people need a space where they can reform. You know, we should be rehabilitating criminals and blah, blah, blah. But then in the same breath, they'll also say, well, these, what do you do about the rapists and murderers? We should just lock them away forever. Fuck those people, you know? And Mm -hmm. there's this deep contradiction, right? Like what are prisons for? Are they for rehabilitation or are they for just putting away the people who we think are going to do terrible things and are completely unreformable? But either way, either way, the ideology is we should put these people away, right? 
Um, so he represents how, like, no matter how, what way you look at prisons, it always was like within the system, it always results in let's lock people away. There's also an element, right. Also of moral reform, right. When we look specifically, there's a history of women's prisons as reformatories, right. Um, I brought up Sadia Hartman's wayward lives, beautiful experiments in a previous episode, um, both Sadia Hartman and Hugh, Hugh Ryan are the two scholars who I think have really deeply looked into this. So, like, there's a long history of this, and I'm, if it's okay, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a dive into that history, if that's okay? Yeah, yeah. Yes, please. So Hartman, early in the, you know, and this history's also gone into an our prison's obsolete, so it's this is mm. not, there's a long history of this kind of scholarship. But Hartman really goes into how black women, um, at the turn of the century, be, as they were in tr- trying to figure out their subjecthood and how to be autonomous human beings within, you know, the afterlife of slavery, those acts of autonomy were then pathologized as being like morally decrepit and gross and like just indecent and being a whore or whatever. And so they were often like swept up um for walking around simply for walking around and locked up in these reformatories where you know they would be taught to be domestic servants and you know yada 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 and they would it would be impossible it would be basically impossible for them to actually meet the level of morality um the kind of morality that these prisons were trying to instill upon them without completely destroying their self right you know it was it was essentially trying to re push them back into a state of enslavement unambiguously. And so the minute they tried to have ideas, you know, be a human being. No, that's, that's you being a disgusting person. You need to be locked up for longer, you know, to continue to be, um, you know, reformed. Right. And I think that the priest in Jojo stone ocean really represents that. And that history kind of is continued. Um, through, you know, the 20th century with the Women's House of Detention in Manhattan, which was a place where um, all sorts of women who were gender nonconforming, largely black, largely queer women, were locked Mm -hmm. up. In fact, Tupac's mom was locked up in the Women's House of D. Um, Tupac's Mm -hmm. mom, who was a, a, a bisexual woman, by the way, from the prison window, she witnessed the Stonewall Rebellion as it was happening, right? Um, and realize, and she built, she decided based on that to try to build coalitions between the Black Panthers and the Gay Liberation Front, right? She, as that was happening, right, like the, the House of D was just taking any woman off the street that it could find that was not gender conforming, stone butches. It would take trans men, you know, obviously trans men are not women, but people who are assigned female at birth, people who the state viewed as women, right? right. And Put it, locking them up and trying to reform them morally. I mean, this is a very personal history to me, I think, because I actually got to, you know, once see Jay Tool, who was one of the people at Stonewall, one of these stone butches who was taken into the Women's House of D, speak. And she's talked about how every single time in the Women's House of D, when a woman will be take, picked up for this moral decrepitude, this alleged moral decrepitude, right? She would be raped every single time. And so the system produces the moral decrepitude, right? That it is then criminalizing. It's almost as if, I guess, like, 
if it happens in a prison to the right people, then it's, I guess, the system working as designed. Um, and people don't see a problem with it. They don't realize that, like, this is just a reproduction of the very thing that you claim to, be, to want to stop. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, like, the really upsetting thing is, like, when we talk about, right, like, rape, prisons are where a lot of rape happens. So yeah. it's like, why are we talking about prison as being a solution to rape when prison is where people will be raped? <laughs> yeah, I think that's where, yeah, I think it's where the, I think it's like sort of two parts, like on one part, this sort of um, disconnect that happens, right? Um, that on one side of it is, you know, there, you know, maybe there are people, and I was like, some like, you know, children, right, who generally are not, um, aware of certain things and i say like i'm like really young children right like who just are not aware of certain things just because of where they're eight where the age and that's not to say that all children aren't aware because there of course there are other there are children that are aware of this like violence that happens because they are right the children of those um of those survivors so i think there's, there's like one part of that where people just like don't no, and that's just because of certain circumstances, like maybe age, like they're just very young and they don't. And then there's the other side of it where it's just like a very like willful, um, which I think is the larger like side of that, right? Or the larger half of that, which is like um, or the larger part, which is that there are people, people are aware, right? People know that this mm. is a space where um, rape, right? Like the prison is a space where like rape occurs, uh, um, um you know, sexual violence generally occurs. And we know this because, right, even when, right, even as, like, as educators, you, you know, you you hear the jokes, right? Like, you're, or, right, you hear the comments. You hear the yes. kids, like, making comments, yes. like, referring to that, um, uh, to prison violence, to sexual assault. Like, to, don't like, drop the soap, that sort of crap. Right, yeah. right. So it's not to say that, like, there aren't, right? It's not, it's not to say that all children aren't aware. Like, many children are aware. Right, and that's because those um, that violence has become so ingrained into not only the prison industrial industrial complex is something that keeps it um, that strengthens it right um, in a in this like really perverse way, but is also a part of our like social consciousness right in terms of like what we know and what's acceptable to like joke about what's acceptable to mention um, in real in um, in these like awful, awful sort of ways. Yeah. And I think that Jojo, to bring it back to Jojo Stone Ocean, what I really mm -hmm. love about the show is it's about these women who have been, you know, who society has deemed like irredeemable, right? Trying to fight back against the people who, who, who are, you know, categorizing them. People like that priest who are, who, who are, categorizing them as irredeemable or alternatively perhaps even worse in need of reform right and trying to act in solidarity with each other within these situations right i mean even in one of the first few episodes like um jolene like as she hears Hermes be like brutally yes. beaten up by these scars right yep. she one of her first uses of her powers is to protect one of her, one of her like fellow inmates 
you know, mm-hmm. from that violence. And it's interesting because the show kind of has this, like, like all JoJo shows, every character kind of starts off, like, most of the fun sidekick characters kind of start off as complete, you know, um, sociopaths. Yep. <laughs> before they before they become, like, you know, your best friend. Yeah, yeah, that's, like, very, that, that I think, yeah, that, like, that's, like, a staple of JoJo's, where, like, there's, like, a character who is, like, initially introduced, and they're, like, you know, um, an antagonist, right? Like, to, to you know, mm-hmm. whichever JoJo is the protagonist. And then, ultimately, you know, after, you know, a certain number of episodes or some um, instance where they have to work together, then they become, like, really close, and they're, like, you know, like a confidant, like, and, like, really close friends and things like that. Yeah. Yep. And I think that that just reads very differently in in a show that takes place in a, in in a prison among women who are trying to survive. It, oh it, yeah, <laughs> it feels very. It has a very different valence there, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's like kind of back to what I was saying earlier, where that when you're watching the earlier parts of JoJo, it's very sort of easy to just kind of okay, like this is a trope, like this is something that happens within JoJo's bizarre adventure, right? There are other characters. Um, who ride like a speed wagon, like in part one, um, a Caesar in part two, uh, a Polnareff in part three, or um, right, like like man, people who've watched JoJo's like know these characters that I'm like like sort of rattling off, but right, like these are characters that are very much so a part of an overall trope, and Hermes is very distinctly different and is connected to that trope in a, in a very like sort of generic sense, but really so right but like this character like this right like Hermes really becomes like a a, a super a, like a, a much more important a much more vital um instance of right uh sexual sexual assault um state um PSC uh sanctioned violence these kind of right these important um topics that are discussed so I think part six is re- like even just or even just Hermes is like a really significant departure from what the JoJo fandom um, and individuals who, you know, generally just kind of maybe like generally watch JoJo's are used to. They're much more used to characters like Gwess, right? Gwess or, or <laughs> Guess. Mm-hmm. Either or one. like, you know, or Foo Fighters, right? Who are characters. Yep. Th- that's much more of kind of like what I was talking about with like the kind of starting off as absolutely crazy people but the thing is that they it feels like they're starting off as as like people who are incredibly violent because the system is violent and that they are trying to gain some agency within a system that is incredibly violent right and it is contextualized within the culture of the space it doesn't feel like they're just being violent for no reason like zipper boy in part five they are violent because the system is violent right (laughs) this is like a zipper boy like I'm gonna Zipper like boy. I think for, like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but yeah, like no, definitely. And I feel like one thing I'm also thinking about with um Stone Ocean is, you know, again the ways in which right like systems right and in particular the prison is uh like there is no one within these systems and in particular the prison that is unaffected, um in some mm-hmm. in some way. And this is why like I think part six works really well because you have these different antagonists and it's not just right. Like, again, it's like, it's not just, um, uh, 
the individuals who are supposed to be these like agents of the state in terms of like officers, correctional officers, right? But it's also like um, the prison doctor, the um, the janitor, um, right? These figures who are within this space who are supposed right who you know normally you're not like oh my god like the janitor you know or or right the doctor but like right but it's like like thunder mcqueen is like an inmate who is working as a janitor and has is like obsessed right is like obsessed with hermes and like is consistently has consistently like um assaulted hermes through um you know through his stand right ability um, amongst other things. Mm. So it's kind of one of those things where, right, it's, again, it's like there is no person within that space who is unaffected. We can also think about um, uh, Emporio, right, who I think is like mm. another like figure that is very distinct, right, is like a very distinct commentary on like um, the violence that is enacted within prison, right? Emporio is, um, as folks know who have watched part six, Emporio, Emporio is a um, child who has been um, who was born within the prison, right? Um, Which is, of course, silly JoJo's nonsense, but still, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, his whole character is like very bizarre, but I think at the same time there is like at he least also looks like, like an old man. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he looks like an old man. Let's be real here. He looks like he's fifty. He's got the JoJo's ugly face going on. Yes. yes. Kind of sounds like classic uh, JoJo. <laughs> JoJo shenanigans, right? Um, but even within, right? But even then, like it's like, the, like the joke, like there's no, like there's no way that like even like with the JoJo shenanigans are like exempt from like the effects of like the prison, right? Like you can't just have this character who like looks fifty and he's just kind of there to be there. It's like no, it's also like related to like state violence, prison violence, right? So I'm going to move on from, from him, but I do, but I, but I do think that like, yeah, like part six is very much so sort of like really great and showcasing that. Like if you are right, if you were within that system, like there was not a single person within that system that can escape the effects of that violence. All right. Shall we move on to the next piece? I think we should move on to talking about like the state, the question of the state, because the state is a question. You know, it's funny. Whenever you talk about something as a question, you know that we're talking about destroying it, right? You know, and, <laughs> like, um, and I mean that it's both in the context of fascism and in the context of abolitionism. <laughs> but yeah, so I I think that. There's multiple strands in abolitionist thoughts. As I talked about in the first episode, some of it is more statist abolitionist thought that believes that somehow we can create a socialist state that still has abolished the police and prisons. Um, again, I really did not, sh- I personally am not sure how, but I, I think anarcho-communism kind of points away to that. Um, whereas there's other strands that are fully anarchist, um, and I thought that maybe it would be cool to talk about the anime decadence in the context of that, because decadence's ending gives us an idea of like what happens when revolution doesn't actually, you know, mean the the complete overhaul or 
destruction of an entire system. It's more repurposing. Uh, so decadence, uh, just the TLDR, that's post-apocalyptic future, uh, climate change, pollution, blah, 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 um, corporations, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's basically two uh, classes of people. They're human beings who are called tankers uh, who live in poverty. They live on this giant ship called the decadence. Uh, and uh, they fight monsters called goggles. Um, and there's this cyborg race called the gears who basically treat all of humanity like a video game. They log into an avatar and they fight the monsters for fun and for glory. Um, and it's essentially about um, a human Natsume and her gear boss, um, Kaburagi, uh, pretty much realizing that the system is exploitative and it kills people and it should die. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff. Um, there's a prison riot at one point, which is really fun. Um, there's a lot of really choice lines. Oh, I don't have my my decadence quotes with me, but there's a lot of really good lines about like, how can you let the system control you and blah, blah, blah. It's really great. Um, <laughs> a lot of the system, man. Yeah. <laughs> the question then, so uh, towards the ending, um, the way it ends is there is like a radical transformation in how things work um rather than this like parasitic relationship between human and gears they kind of like live in harmony there's a you can farm now the video game is stardew valley instead of cod or whatever (laughs) um there's like more there's like more sustainability there's not like as much coercion um but the system which is a literal thing, like the computer system that like runs everything is still in place. Um, and it's run by an administrator of the old system who has basically like changed his mind. Right. Um, and so the question, there's basically two things about decadence. The first is the second half of the show really focuses on the gears a lot more than the tankers. And it goes back to like centering the people who are most affected. Right. Um, there's definitely like a desire when you watch it to see more of like the humans in the back half of the show um, and not so much the gears, although the gears are very fun and cute and they have like great designs. Um, and the other thing is like, like, is that enough, right? You, you have overhauled the system, but like there is still a system and it is still run by like kind of the old guard. So there's a question of like, is that thorough enough? Right. And also who decided that? Like, why like the show it thinks very far ahead but then seemingly not far ahead enough to imagine like maybe a more like democratic organization of like the system or a system where there's like more input or a system where like the humans actually run it right um so there's a lot of interesting questions that i think map onto like the questions of abolitionist movements as well uh, to be clear i think the show is so fucking good i love it so much like I highly like 10 out of 10 watch. Um, it's good enough that even with this ending, which I think falls a little short, it, it's still like a, an emotionally satisfying ending for basically every character. Like it makes sense why they did it. Yeah. I was rewatching the ending earlier today and I just, I don't know. Every time Natsume was on screen, I started crying and I'm like, why? She's like, the, I'm like she's crying. such a good protagonist. Oh, it's great. It's she's like, I wish he had stayed the protagonist, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
that goes back to the to, to what we were talking about, right? Mm. Yeah, it's so funny. The show creates such a fantastic protagonist in Natsume, and you think she's going to be protagonist in the first episode, and then very slowly over the course of the show, she becomes less and less and less of a protagonist. And like, I think part of what frustrates me about Decadence, right, is that I think that um, she is kept in the dark over so much of what she's doing. Even in the process, like, there's an episode where they're, like, destroying the, the Godall factory, the, the monster factory, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't know what she's doing when she's doing that. She's just like, I'm just coming along with you doing this thing. I don't know what it is, but I guess I'm doing it, right? But she doesn't even know that she's about to destroy the entire, like, system that, like, the governs her life. And she's just doing it. And it's a little bit, like... It reminds me a lot of like what what Paulo Freire talks about in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is like mm. you need to like you cannot be assuming that you have more knowledge than the people who you are working with and trying to liberate. That is, right. yeah, and certainly you cannot be hiding information from them or manipulating them for 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 your revolutionary purpose. I think if we think a little. Uh... It's funny. If you think a little less politically and a little bit more like just like the dynamics of the anime, if I had to think about it, I think there's like some sort of anxiety, maybe from the staff, I don't know who it is, maybe from the studio, whatever. There's not actually a belief that like in the story with like all these gears and stuff like that, that like an ordinary female disabled human can actually like carry the show i think i think that's an unfortunate thing that they maybe thought and so they tried probably to get more kaburagi there out of i guess some sort of assumption that like he would be like a better lead or a more compelling lead but kaburagi's great but he's not a more compelling lead than natsume he just like flat out isn't (laughs) natsume (laughs) is just like the best person for for the role in her own show right um, she's optimistic. She's like human. She's real, right? She's got all these amazing faces. Her her expressions are so awesome. Um, and yet, there's like, I guess, like in real world, there's like a lack of trust that, like, you know, the most suppressed can like lead social change, right? There's yeah. also a lack of trust that um, Natsume can like lead her own show, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I would agree. I think one thing, I, yeah, I think that um, it's weird because I feel like the majority, I feel like a lot of people, you know, it's like, and it's not that um, Kaburagi is a, a, a bad, right, quote unquote, bad character or anything like that. It's just, oh, like, he's yeah, like he's, you know, like he's he just great. shouldn't be like the lead. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I feel like, um, it, it, it is it is an unfortunate thing because there are just so many great things going for um, the show and like kind of like the messages that it's trying to portray and how Natsume um, does that. And I think there's an instance, right? Like there's an instance where the show is doing like a really great job and there's a way in which like Natsume, right, becomes more confident. Like un- like it's very like, right, um, unwavering in, kind of, in terms of like what, her sort of goals are and what she intends to do um but and and there's that growth in that but then like there's a point where it's just like okay let's like let's kind of shelve that 
And let's talk about like Kabadagi, the cyborg, and like you know what his issues are, and like what he's been going through, and like, and it, it it's it's like okay, but I like I think I think all of us here are like we're just more invested in Natsume and like her growth as like in a lot of ways like a revolutionary, right? Um, and yes. yeah, yeah. So. It's it's an unfortunate thing. It's an unfortunate thing because I think as I like yeah, and especially like towards the tail end, you're like, it's almost like the show tries to, at some point, kind of like reinsert that um, narrative and try and and tries to make it like yeah, like we didn't see, we didn't forget, see, we didn't forget, but it's like eh, you know, like, but Kabudagi is still like he's still like very much so like at the center. Everything like revolves around what he's able to do and his skill set, right? And his um drive. So yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, just yeah, I, and I, like I bring shame. Sorry. Uh just quickly, like the the fact that like Kaburagi is the one that takes down the system with like I mean the humans help a little bit, but it's like insignificant. I think that's just like kind of waste of potential. Mm. Honestly. Like as much I I love the show so much, I I'm not sure my my brain would be able to handle it if if it was the same. But also the ending was better than I think I would like. I would never watch any other anime again. I think I just like watch that and it's on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting because I think of decadence right like as like an attempt to kind of return to some of the same themes. So like right before this. You all, we, we were having, we had the Death Parade podcast come out. You're probably listening to this after the Death Parade podcast that we put out, where I talked a lot about how how the director of Decadence in Death Parade kind of confronts the system and, like, you know, proposes these kind of interpersonal transformations as, like, you know, the character's responses to a wildly unjust system rather than taking down the system as a whole. And I think Decadence was him attempting to return to those themes and say like, well, actually, no, actually I'm, I'm a revolutionary. This need, things need to be taken. Things actually need to change and the system itself needs to be taken down. Mm -hmm. But the question is, you know, ultimately is, was the imagination of the writer and director enough to like create a, a truly revolutionary show or is it just kind of, creating a system that is effectively, you know, less less oppressive, but still um, kind of generating capital through, you know, mm. another kind of relation. I'm still unclear about whether there's another kind of planet where everybody else is, and this is just kind of like a vacation spot for everyone to go and have <laughs> some fun at. You know, I, I feel a little bit unclear about the world building, um, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I do think, yeah, I agree. I would agree with that. So I guess the last thing I'd say about Decadence is just, I would encourage people to watch it. You'll, I promise you'll have a good time. And like, watch it with those questions in mind about like, what is it that you imagine when you truly say, like the characters say that you want to like overturn the entire system and then compare it with what the show actually does and then see for yourself if you are satisfied or not. Because I think doing that will also gets you thinking about the exact same questions through like abolition and abolitionist movements. All right. Um, unfortunately, um, Mo has to step off now, but um, 
we will we we're going to continue the podcast um it we're uh we're we're going to keep keep going but um unfortunately uh yes to step off so um remind us where we can find you Mel. oh yes uh moblack.xyz um it's been super fun thank you so much for having me um i've read the rest of this conversation i can see the future i know it'll be great so please don't leave <laughs> all right take care take care so good having you so Danny, I, mm. I I wanted to bring in one of both of our favorite theorists uh, ah. to talk about, <laughs> you know, to talk about like a little bit about decadence and also bring us into our next conversation. What do you think about Joy James and her theories of kind of revolutionary transformation? Uh, me? I mean, I, yeah, I, I love I love her work. Um, I love uh many of the ways in which she challenges like and and is really just like a kind of like a true kind of scholar in that sense like you know sort of surveys the landscapes of um abolition critic you know criticism uh black studies criticisms um and is just sort of like hmm something something you know something or some some things are not being like uh examined enough or um people aren't being honest enough about the state of certain you know certain um struggles and the decisions that are made um both in academic spaces and within uh organizing spaces and just amongst ourselves in terms of like how we talk about, you know, how we talk about revolution, how we talk about abolition, um, how we talk about uh, black feminism. Um, so yeah, I, like, I think she's great. I think she's great. And I think she's just like constantly like on the forefront of like being like, all right, y'all got to be honest about, you know, X, Y, and Z. And if we're, if we can't be honest about those things and the scholarship is not, um, then the scholarship won't be particularly useful um, for what we're trying to do as abolitionists. Yeah, and I think that um, specifically referring to a, a piece that she put out, so Joy James herself, the, her focus, for those of y'all who don't know, which is probably a lot of people, Joy James is a scholar of incarcerated intellectuals. So she works with people who intellectuals who have been put in prison because often that's for political reasons right and tries to um elevate their voices make sure and um bring their conversations into the scholarly tradition through her work um but she also um is a scholar of abolitionism and black studies and one of her most like her pieces that really caused a buzz a couple years ago i believe um, three years ago, right during the center of the George Floyd protests, um, was a piece called Airbrushing Revolution for the Sake of Abolition. In this mm -hmm. piece, she was responding to, as I was talking about earlier, this kind of breaking of abolitionism into the mainstream and kind of this kind of almost comforting narrative of abolition that, like, it can be achieved through, you know, these ways where there does not necessarily have to be a, I, I don't want to say violent revolution, but like 
where there doesn't ha- have to be the kind of like rigorous militant um mm-hmm. trans like transformation and um like struggle yeah and kind of critiquing the placement of abolitionist theory within the academy as such as being like kind of this woo-woo theory that's not really <laughs> necessarily connected to the violence of people's lives and to the mm. like re- the reality of kind of um of trying to prison break and get people you know out of um this the situation of incarceration and the actual lived experience of that and i think that that's really interesting because her work i think clarifies a little bit of this kind of you know decadence and i think at large a lot of anime's like way of looking at revolution right yeah as this kind of impulse, this affective theoretical impulse towards taking down the system, take it down. <laughs> um, it can be done through ideas, through the idea of, you know, you just got to convince the people that this is what's right. Um, and, you know, I think that the, um, or alternatively, like we can, you know, slowly, I think this is also partly a critique, I think, of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, you know, whose work is mm. s- sometimes, like, talks about, like, you know, the gradual, like, repurposing of the state that we ha- have in using it to create, you know, new systems and, like, gradually those new syst- systems completely replacing the old, right? And I think that there's a critique there of that kind of, like, can the system be repurposed and still change everything in the way that abolitionism says it can, you know, in the way that even Ruth Wilson Gilmore's, of course, I say even Ruth Wilson Gilmore, <laughs> in the way that Ruth Wilson Gilmore yeah. says is necessary, right? Um, yeah. You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore herself being, of course, one of the most important scholars of abolitionist ideas. She mm-hmm. wrote Golden Gulag. The, mm-hmm. And I think Decadence is like this interesting text because it kind of reveals the limits of that kind of understanding of revolution, right? I th- I think they're de- like one thing I do, one thing I do like about decadence before, sort of like the ending, um, and I think you know, you know all of us are kind of like in agreement that like the ending is very kind of like kind of woo woo and kind of like kind of all over the place and and doesn't really have, and at least to me is not very um, specific or you know um, or cemented in terms of like, okay, what will like the world not it's not not like it's necessarily but what the world will look like but just like what will actually change like what like what 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 truly different um systems uh and i don't mean system but like like what 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 will be put in place that like is like inherently different from what we had before right like you still have like you know these sports you still have like these systems where people are like you know paying for different kinds of foods and things like that and th- it's almost like a hodgepodge of like ideas at the end where it's like yeah you know cultivating our own food and like controlling the means of production but also like you know um here are these stalls where you're going to buy these things for these particular prices and there's like some market system apparently that 
came from somewhere, <laughs> you know? So, so it's like stuff like that where I think the ending is kind of like bizarre in that way. It's not particularly, to me, useful um, in terms of like sort of imagining what like revolution would look like, like in that sense. But I do think there are other instances in terms of like a path towards like revolution in which decadence is useful um, and is like uh, very much so kind of like related to some of the work that Joy James has done in terms of like talking about, you know, um, airbrushing abolition and thinking about the people who are uh, working towards abolition. So there's that. Yeah, I think that it's like, it. Th- that's one of the big struggles for me, like, especially as like a disabled person, right? Like, mm. I, what, what, if the, abol- if the, you know, revolution cre- creates a space where disabled people are thrown away, right? Where the organized abandonment is worse, you know, because there's nothing yeah. <laughs> to, you know, to, to, to actually, you know, create any kind of you know stability for disabled people right like mm-hmm. if i can't get my meds after the revolution yeah. <laughs> i am you know what like what is the purpose what are we doing here and so that that like is is part of the question right like of anarchism versus like you know a more communist system like when i was working when i was um used to organize with Miriam kaba she would often say like the reason i'm a communist and not at and not an anarchist is because I, I fully believe that the state's power is too important for us to just throw away. Right. The state can have this incredibly important, you know, role in protecting people and preventing organized abandonment of people. You know, that's Mm. why communism is a thing. Right. You know, but, and, and I think that's where, why I kind of align myself more with like an anarcho communist mindset rather Mm -hmm. than I'm not, I'm not a full anarchist. Right. I'm like, it's, it's, it's just, the idea of abdicating state power entirely is a question, right? In abolitionism, you know, can a state mm. exist without the police? Mm. <laughs> like, can it? I, I don't I, know. I, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I, and I think this is where Joy James is a, is really great um, for her interventions. And I, I would say that Joy James is sort of like, is on the is probably of the opinion that you know and that to, the answer to that question is like you know the state is um, inherently like violent right the state um, a- and the state um, will use that violence right to s- stabilize itself um, in in, in, yes. in, mul- in multiple ways right but I think both of us are probably thinking of like that idea of like. Um, of James's idea of the captive maternal, um, and I yes, think that, which I was a, right? you're gonna use yes in just yeah. a second to transition us. <laughs> yeah, so so and I think that like decadence is great, not necessarily towards the end, but I think um, I, I, not the ending ending, but I think like prior to that, I think there are figures like within decadence who are specifically right like harmed right but also take on those roles of okay like right caretakers um individuals who um will do that revolutionary work and um who are as like um James would say like um it like like take on those roles that are as James would say completely worthy of them but 
um, those mm-hmm. roles, right? Those functions, right? Their functions, right? Stabilize the system, right? At least within decadence. So it's an interesting thing. Yeah. And decadence explicitly says that actually at one point, you know, yeah. like when Kaburagi's in this big confrontation with the, 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 the big boss, you know, he, he says like, why, what's going on here? You know, why are, why are you even talking to me? I'm a bug. And she says, well, bugs are, you know, bugs actually the, the, the create the, the continued maintenance of and destruction of bugs actually is what stabilizes the system. It's not without, you know, they're the, the bugs in a sense, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're recuperated back into the system um which brings us i guess to talking about the captive maternal which brings us to dismantling anti-blackness right so so joy james has this concept called the the captive maternal and i'm going to use it as a way to kind of bring us into michiko and hachin because and this is how we're going to end the episode because um i don't i don't know if we're going to have a lot to talk about with michiko and hachin because both of us are still in the process of watching it but Mm. it brings up a lot to think about with the captive maternal. So to, to kind of introduce that idea, the captive maternal is one a, a theory of Joy James of understanding how women of colors, lab, reproductive labor and maternal labor and feminized labor is used to reinforce and re, reinforce the system uh, that ultimately oppresses them. Like the classic example that she gives, right, is um, she, she talks about in the podcast she has with um, on millennials like hell and capitalism, um, like the mother whose you know child is currently you know whose child is in you know trying to go to school, right, you know, and so mm-hmm. the mother does everything that she can to like she's a black mother right you know she sees that the school is like hyper segregated you know the local school is hyper segregated and so she might you know join the pta or she might protest or she might try to do everything that she can to try to make the school you know livable for her child um but ultimately all that labor to try to make the school even moderately you know possible to survive for her child is reincorporated back into and to stabilize the system itself of the school you know and simultaneously her you know her her child can possibly see you know that the system is not going to prepare prepare the child for you know the above ground economies the the markets and so they enter the underground economy where as joy james puts it the blood is you know on the ground rather than on the stock yep. floor, you know, mm-hmm. and it's the in, but the process, the point is the process of resi- resistance and trying to create livable lives reinforces the violence of the system, especially as it pertains to, for example, like the husband, the wives of people who are incarcerated, who try to, you know, yeah. make that system livable for their hu- husbands, etc. Right. So I, I wanted to bring this up. Did you have anything you wanted to add about, like, kind of that theory before we move into, like, no, talking that's about pretty... Michiko and Hachin? Yeah, I think it's great. I, I, what I would also, what I would also say, um, yeah, yeah, to add to one more thing is that I think one thing um, with uh, this idea, well, the 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 function of the captain of paternal is like it's like a, like yeah, a couple things. One is that um, you know James kind of. Uh, states is pretty explicitly multiple times but it's like the captain maternal is like a function so it's not just oh like here's this person over here this person is you know um uh 
a Captain Maternal. It's more like the relationship between this individual and the state and um, these systems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the individual's relationship between the people, their loved ones, right? And the people that they are um, working to um, protect and care for, like, yes. that, right? That creates something very distinct, right? So it's so, so, so when we're kind of thinking about that, we have to kind of, you know, keep that at the forefront. I think the second thing um, is that um, this is also something that's like, I think, pretty um, explicit and just like one within abolition um, and two um, within like sort of um, James and when sort of the, her scholarship is that Captain Maternals are not like, you know, these like um, sort of angelic, you know, uh, maternal figures, right? Like not every Captain Maternal not at all. Um, no. is, uh, is this like, you know, um, perfect like uh, mother figure or something like that, right? Who was like harmed by the state, but that like Captain Maternals, right? In, ter- in their function, right? Are flawed and those, and right? Are flawed people. And those flaws um, uh, are also like included in terms of how the um, the function of the Captain Maternal stabilizes the state and stabilizes these, uh, these, these um, systems. Yeah. Right. There's a certain like element of like, we often talk about quote unquote intergenerational trauma and it's often done in this very kind of, um, it's often done in this very depoliticized way where it's just like, we need to break the cycles of trauma in a way that often (laughs) apologizes our parents and the people who like Mm -hmm. went through things that are unimaginable to us. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see this so much in Asian American communities, but if we look at it in the context of the captive maternal, right? Like we understand that the, the, the kind of the, 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 extreme sacrifice and labor that w- these women of color go through to support their children is what stabilizes the system, right? And is what makes their children's lives, you know, not completely collapse from under them, you know? And of course is, you know, what fucks them up, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a captive position and it's, and it's also not fungible in the sense that it is not captain maternals often occupy very different positions within these power structures you know she talks about um asana shakur as a captive maternal but i wanted Mm. to go in but she also talks about uh, because asada you know for all of her work to resist the state you know she also the black panthers free breakfast program that made Mm -hmm. you know it, it was an example of how that is a, that is stuff that the government should have been doing. You know, they should have been providing <laughs> yeah. those breakfasts. But we, but instead, the Black Panther Party in you know stabilizes the survival of its people while also reinforcing the the state's ability to continue this position of organized abandonment because it's about organized abandonment. It's about the state com- and our entire society completely abandoning an entire class of people. Yes. because of where they live and who they are. And we see this so much in Michiko and Hachin. Oh, we're going to get to it. So Michiko and Hachin <laughs> is about all the people who've experienced the worst of organized abandonment, who have mm-hmm. been systematically shut out of just even a basic survival um, with, you know, and who have to, as James talks about, enter underground economies um, to survive because of all of this 
of that profound organized abandonment. And I wanted to talk a little bit about like Michiko and Atsuko as two different captive maternals. And also Pepe, because Pepe is a really interesting example of a captive maternal. So I think like I think all three of them are really interesting examples of captive maternals. Like these women of yep. color, especially, you know, Afro Latina women who are just kind of trapped in the system that is well, trapped in a position of having to pick up the pieces for what the state abandons, mm-hmm. regardless of, you know, whether they feel qualified to or are really have the ability to or not. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. D- did you want to kind of speak to that? Um, we, I, I guess, I, I feel like I, I could start any, any of them, but I think where I would probably, where I definitely want to start is, um, I guess it would make the most sense to start with, um, Michiko, because most mm, people who yes. have like watched the show will probably, you know, see her most often and kind of like be able to like see the links between um, her situation um, within the show um, and um, Joy James's work in terms of thinking about like the Captain yes. Eternal. Um, yeah. But also, like, um, Atsuko, right? Like, is, like, her is very mm. interesting because, you know, because there is for that. But I guess I'll start with Michiko. So, for me, um, the thing that I think is, and the word I'd probably use is, like, heartbreaking, is that with Michiko, right? Like, her, the, the, the premise kind of, like, of the show, like, as we're sort of going along, is Michiko's role as a caregiver. Right, and I suppose, um, before you go on, Maybe I should give them a quick summary. So Michiko and Hachin is about um, two, two, um, an, uh, like a ten-year-old girl and her and a twenty-seven-year-old woman. You know, the girl is like white passing, and the twenty-seven-year-old mm-hmm. woman is like Afro-Latina, and the the girl is you know they both are connected because um, the. The father of the girl and the girl and the boyfriend of, uh, the father of Hana or Hachin and the, the boyfriend of Michiko, um, is the same. It's Hiroshi. And he has gone missing, leading Hana to be, to kind of put in foster care with an abusive family who she has to escape. And then for, and Michiko to try to find him. And so Michiko tries to kind of just, so Michiko saves Hana from her abusive foster family, right? And yep. yeah, and the show is about them trying to find um, Hana's father and Michiko's boyfriend while while mm-hmm. escaping the police because Michiko is a you know a fugitive of the state. Anyways, continue yep. with what you're saying, Danny. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's important, right? That um that Michiko is like uh specifically a fugitive, right? A fugitive like of the state. And it's so what I, what I was thinking about was that even as right, even right, even as Michiko has this violence that's like um, been enacted on her and continues to be enacted on her as a as a fugitive, right, as a fugitive of the state, as a um, uh, person who is a right, as an incarcerated person who has escaped um, prison, like. So that's one, right? So, th- so those are that's something that she is consistently dealing with throughout the show, um, right? And even then, she still has 
the right even with right even with um that right she still has like the emotional um and physical capacity right and mental capacity to work to take care of Hachin and to like find her right and to take care of her and to um and to do that and to do that caregiving work right but right at the same time we know that right again like it is supposed to be right it's supposed to be um the job of the state to like make sure that Hachin is safe it is the job of this is supposed right amongst uh, right 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 it like to make sure that she has shelter to make sure that she has food like thing right w- without all of these like um really just like abhorrent caveat right caveats like the abusive family right the the um um the the padre um and that family that's just like absolutely horrible to Hachin. um so i think michigo is a great character because um and, and relates so much to James's work because, again, it's like um, James will consistently kind of come back to this idea, right? That like it's like one of these people are right that um, Captain Maternals um, are flawed, right? They're not right. Michigo is not this like you know um, cookie cutter um, you know uh, person who is um, you know like that. We just can't you know, that we don't have any, um, that's like, you know, super clean or anything like that. Right. She is like pretty, like, I think to me, distinctly flawed in the show, like for that, re- for that, for that reason. Um, and yet, right. Her, uh, her role, like, right. As a caregiver, as someone who is trying to like take care of Hachin is like, again, like in, in the words of sort of James is like, it's completely like, it's, it's, it's like a task right that is like completely worthy of Michiko right this um right in her ability to like love in her ability to care for um um other people um to and to continue to do that even while she is a fugitive of the state right and yeah yeah so that so that's one thing that i would say i i would say that about Michiko yeah and to add on to that right like she resists that role it's not like she takes that role and is like fully ready to accept mm-hmm. it. She and there's times where she, where she, and that's the thing about the Captain Maternal. It's not a choice. It's something that is no. done under threat of violence, right? So yeah. she she tries to drop like Hachin off at a orphanage, right? The same orphanage where she grew up, by the way. Um, that she knew that mm-hmm. orphans were being sold into child trafficking, right? And of course the 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 matron of the orphanage just throws Hachin away and is like, no, you don't have any money, go away. Right? Mm-hmm. And so Michiko is forced back into that role of the captive maternal, even as she's like rejecting it. And by the way, her rejecting it is not inherently a good thing. The captive mm-hmm. maternal is not a, it's not necessary as as um, Danny was saying, it, and as George James says, it is these are roles and work that are worthy of her. These are good. These are often like deeply meaningful like things, right? Providing free breakfasts as the Black Panthers did, yeah. right? But it is done under this threat of violence and in a way that can only stabilize the state, right? Yeah, and. 
I think that it's interesting in content. And the thing about the Captain Maternals, right, is that it is also not, she also emphasized it's not fungible. There's also people who are doing things that where they are agents of the state as Captain Maternals, Mm. people like Atsuko, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's there are there's so many um there there's just like so many like intricacies in terms of her function her function as a captain maternal um the relationship between her and Michiko um the uh colorism um that oh, occurs yes. between the two right and and so and again and right and like all of these things. Um, only serve to stabilize a state, right? If we consider, mm-hmm. uh, right, if we go back to some, right, and we consider like, right, Michiko and her and her caregiving, right, when it comes to Hachin, like that is like, right, the state will be like, okay, right, that is one less child that I have to uh, be concerned with because I know that even as right, that, right in the state, right, I'm kind of like personifying the state, but. Right, the state is sort of like, yeah, like I know that Michiko is working as a caregiver for this per for Hachin for this child. So the, the these are there are this number, um, these number of things, uh, right? These very few fewer number of things like that I have to provide that I have to that I have to um, um do, and when we think about the relationship between uh, Michiko and Atsuko, like. I think the one thing for me is like, like the relationship is also key, but I also think that the fact that um, um, Atsuko is an agent of the state is one of those things that I think sometimes people, right? Like, again, like Captain Maternals are flawed, right? And and it's it's an important, it's an important um, distinction because not all Captain Maternals are actively working um, against the state. Um, yeah. And simultaneously stabilizing the state, right? Like this is a character, right? Atsuko is a character who is an agent of the state, right? And mm-hmm. has been harmed by the state, right? But is still doing that, yep. and is and is like, and maybe even and not necessarily in um, more um, like stabilizing the state more in a sense, um, but is definitely um, doing it in a, like actively in a in a conscious way. Right is like consciously mm-hmm. stabilizing the state as a agent of the state, right? So yeah, and even as she's doing it, of course, she's in, put in this position where she has to choose between like, am I going to continue to enact this violence against my former friend, right, Michiko, or am I going to resist the states? You know, um, resist. And when she lets Michiko go, well, first of all, she was going to get you know, thrown away anyways. Azuko is going to get thrown away anyways. Like, as Savannah Shange puts it, like, the state eats it, the, the police force eats its own sometimes, and it protects its own. It, okay, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to, like, delete all of what I just said. Okay, I'm thinking, how do I put this? <laughs> I'm running out <laughs> of steam. We should wrap this up. The point is, Azuko is put in this position, right, where she has to choose whether she's going to continue this role of hunting down the people who she cares about, right? Um, and continue mm. this role that she's been given where she is the cap, the captor and, and Michiko is the captive. And 
ultimately, when Atsuka realizes that she, the, the state will throw her away as a black woman, right? Yeah. She chooses, um, at, at the very least, up to where I've watched. I've only seen up to episode 11, so please, mm. dude, if you've watched it, be aware that that's where I'm seen up to. She chooses to yeah. let Michiko go. And that's really interesting to me because is that what, how does that align with all these ideas that we talked about? I think, I think to me, um, the ways in which the, that aligns is again, like, right. Like if we're thinking about like there, right. There are aspects of those relationships, right. Um, that, a captive that a, that the captive maternal has with others that again stabilizes like the state right and it allows the state to enact more violence um, against not only the captive maternals but the people that the captive maternals care about so uh, and care yes. care give for so the thing here right is that and that's why I like that conversation that um, they have when um, right Michiko was kind of like. Don't you want the chase to go on a little bit longer? Like, are you going to catch me right mm, now? Mm, mm, mm. Right, and you can see, and 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 the instances in which Atsuko um, lets um, Michiko go, or sort of like lets her escape. Right, these are things that if we read into them in, in um, on a on a sort of surface level, right? If we don't consider James's work, we would say, oh well, you know, Atsuko is really kind, and she's trying to help her friend, and we might just you know against like the state, and we might just end there. But again, if we to consider if we consider James's work, and we consider again that the Captain Maternal and those relationships and that function, right, ultimately stabilizes the state. We can see um, Michiko and Atsuko's interaction, in, uh, that particular interaction, as stabilizing um, that uh, that dichotomy, right, of like um, cop cops and robbers right like you know in a very like kind of like um basic sort of sense right like this is this, the chaser and the chased right the mm-hmm. um the agent the agent of the state and the fugitive of the state like those that, dichotomies it, 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 are like solidified yeah which brings us back to the asada shakur right one of one of um, her classic examples, right, of a Captain Maternal, Asada Shakur's image being used as this like fugitive who must be found, reinforces this entire self conception of America, right, and of mm-hmm. the and of justice and of you know what how the state relates to um, political um, ex- exiles, effectively. Um, I think that just about wraps up what we can do for today. Um, it, uh, did you have any last things you wanted to say, Danny, before we wrap up? Yeah, one last thing. Because I, I, I don't want to forget about Pepe, right? So one thing I will say yes, about her character, that's, that's kind of important to, again, relating back to um, this idea of the Captain Maternal and this idea of like you know abolition and all this stuff, is that um, well, a question that a lot of individuals have, right, when we're thinking about the Catherine Maternal and all of this is what what is the end game for the captive maternal? And I think Pepe is really just this like um um there's a kind of like a pathetic um sort of uh in a in a very sort of like pathetic way, right? And I don't mean like pathetic, ugh, mm. pathetic. I mean like, you know, in the like the th- critical theoretical sense, is that 
the end game for often, right, is death, right? So mm. the, the, the thing to kind of consider here, right, is like you have these characters and Michiko, Atsuko, and Pepe all kind of work to kind of, in a really great way, showcase this like spectrum um, of the eventuality of, um, you know, sort of the end, the end or um, the beginnings, the end, the middle, like, grounds of the captive, mm-hmm. like, of the captive maternal, what happens. So I would leave off with that. I know it's a somber kind of place to, to end, but that's where I would leave yeah. it. Yeah, the captive maternal will be used for her labor and then thrown away. Yep. And that's what is so why there's an urgency, right? And a moral mm-hmm. urgency, right, to understanding this, especially as we look at immigrant parents, as we look at all of these situations. Um, all right. Uh, so um, on that note, we are wrapping up. Uh, Danny, where can people find you? Um, you can always find me on Twitter at the Manga Scholar. Um, and you can find me on YouTube. You can just type in the Black Manga Critic and you'll find like videos and my channel. Um, and if you ever want to contact me about anything like related to what we've been discussing um, or um, anything YouTube related um, or Twitter related, you can find, you can send me an email at anime manga ny at gmail.com. Great. And um, if I'm, this has been Tony, uh, um, you can find me at Poet on Twitter. And this has been Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist Podcast. Um, if you like what you heard, leave us a review um, and subscribe. Um, if you really like what you heard, you can follow us um, on, on Twitter at Anime Feminist. And you can um, subscribe to our Patreon. We are really trying to build up our Patreon so that we can pay our contributors and editors more um, because people deserve good pay. And yes. uh, we are, we also have a Kofi if you want to do uh, a smaller donation. Um, and with a Patreon subscription, you get access to our bonus podcasts and access to our discord which is such a fun place promise you'll love it there um one of the safest spaces for talking about anime and complex ideas that i've ever been in all right and with that uh we are signing off all right bye y'all